Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello. And welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest in this episode, telling me the five things he would like to preserve in a time capsule, four things he treasures, and one he wants to be rid of, is the national treasure, Russell Grant. Russell is an actor, presenter and astrologer who has been a regular on our TV since 1979, talking about horoscopes and astrology on programmes such as Good Morning Britain, Richard and Judy, This Morning and BBC Breakfast Time. He also appeared on Celebrity Stars in Their Eyes, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, Loose Women, All-Star Family Fortune, Pointless Celebrities, Let's Do Lunch, The Chase and even the classic Celebrity Squares. More recently, he was a contestant on Celebrity MasterChef, where his toad in the hole and apple crumble were impressive enough to see him eliminated from the contest. Anyway, he's always been a much-loved personality. But he's also an actor, regularly appearing in Panto and taking over the titular role from Michael Crawford in The Wizard of Oz at the London Palladium. But he really won the nation's heart when he was fired out of a cannon on Strictly Come Dancing, a show he survived for eight weeks because he was, well, he was brilliant. So here he is, the unmistakable Russell Grant. Oh, Russell Grant, how lovely. Well, here we are in your mother's lovely house. Yes. By the river. M- dear mum, uh, we've sent her out for the day, <laughs> otherwise she'd take over this whole interview and conversation. <laughs> this podcast would be about my mother. Yes. So she's popped off with her friend Helen, and they're probably supping tea and scones as we speak. Oh, lucky them. I know, I know. we just got an old cuppa. <laughs> Am I right? I'm always cautious about things that I've read on the internet. Yeah, never bother with Wikipedia. I know. No, so, so let's test it. Let's test Wikipedia. Because it did say that both your mother and father worked at Pinewood Studios. Now, that bit is right. Ah. My dad, sadly, I lost him not so long ago. He was a set designer. And he worked on Anthony and Cleopatra. Wow. The Rex Harrison version with Vivian Lee. Yes. And um, he worked on Blythe Spirit. Noel Coward used to come in and ask for his opinion on the set. And my mother was a contract secretary. And so she used to do all the big stars' contracts. Dirk Bogard, Deborah Carr. And Stuart Granger who some of the older listeners may remember, but not everybody, Stuart Granger, he used to come to my mother and go, have you got anything to eat in that drawer of yours, Joan? (laughs) Because my mother's nickname was Scoff, because she was always scoffing something. And she'd say, I've got a corned beef sandwich. So (laughs) he used to come to my mother when he was feeling peckish. 
So mum and dad were there. My uncle John, um, well, he worked himself up as a, uh, from a, being a tea boy at Pinewood and then Shepperton. And basically, he ended up winning an Oscar for The Deer Hunter. Really? He, his name's John Peverell, well, he's passed over now. And the, he did some amazing films, Quadrophenia, Khartoum, wow. The Man Who Fell to Earth. Fantastic. So that was my uncle, and he worked his way up. So the family are really steeped, not so much in theatre, but movies. Yes. Well, here we are, and I have with me this time capsule, and we're going to put five things from your life into it to preserve them for you. Didn't Blue Peter do something like that once? I think they did. They didn't put any pets in, I don't think. No, I don't think so. But they they had Petra, I think, (laughs) cast in bronze. They did, in the garden. And when I was working at the BBC, because one of the things I would definitely put into the the time capsule is the launch of breakfast television. Oh, yes. Where so many people said it won't last. (laughs) And um, I remember walking around the garden and doing my stars from there. The interesting thing is everybody thinks that I worked for a very long time, years, in fact, for BBC Entertainment, but I never did because breakfast television was news and current affairs. Yeah. So I actually started off the national side of my career working as an astrologer for news and current affairs. <laughs> and it was the most wonderful time. Frank Buff, Selena Scott, and we launched January 1983 and never looked back, really. I mean, I'm still standing at 69 years old. And when I think I, I was in my early 30s when I started that half of my life, I've been very lucky to be doing what I do. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it? Because at the time, that was regarded as being an extraordinary risk to put television on in the morning. Absolutely. They said it would just be night workers and the unemployed. And in fact, I used to go on at 8.30 in the morning. There was a complaint once raised, I think by the Secretary of Education, that too many children we're not getting to school on time because they were all waiting for Russell Grant stars. <laughs> oh, Isn't that just fabulous? <laughs> that is fabulous. It, and, and, and that was one of the complaints. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Ron Neal, our, our amazing editor who really created this phenomenon, which it was, mm. he had this idea of creating the daily mirror of the air. So that's why they had astrology. We had a wonderful time. I, I've not heard from Selena for a while, but she retired in the end, I believe. And poor Frank, of course, um, had troubles and problems, and um, he just disappeared from view. It's an sadly. unforgiving world, isn't it? It is. It mm. is. And and this is, of course, long before social media. Yes. So um, Ron had this idea of this Daily Mirror template and it works and to this day you look at something like good morning britain and ironically piers morgan was my editor at the daily mirror some years ago (laughs) but the daily mirror format is still working on good morning britain it hasn't changed nothing changed and the bbc it turns out after four years our ratings were so good that the hierarchy at the bbc decided we should be more serious news So no longer did we become breakfast time, we became breakfast news Uh. with Jeremy Paxman. Well, I remember the day when we were told it was going to change and Ron said, we've made a classic mistake with the BBC. We've got a fucking audience. (laughs) And that that, that, that really was, and it all changed. I then got a call from a, a man who's still a dear friend of mine, Mike Hollingsworth, who had moved from the BBC to TVAM, and and I moved over from the BBC to TVAM. And then after that, you got from TVAM, it went over to Good Morning Britain, GMB, and now it is what it is. Yes. Which, if you go back to the early days of breakfast time on BBC, nothing has changed. But it's strange that pressure, isn't it, on the BBC to stop entertaining 
when in fact that's part of its remit. I know. Its remit is to entertain, to educate and to inform. But don't forget, we were coming out of news and current affairs. Right. We weren't coming out of BBC entertainment. Ah. And so therefore it was a Scylla and Charybdis moment where the two rocks were clashing mm. against each other. In fact, all the offers that I started to receive didn't come from the BBC, even though I had a tremendous post bag. I was getting, at one point, a 1,000 letters and postcards a day. Wow. But there was no social media. People couldn't uh, couldn't become a part of a programme like they do now. Mm. They own and invest in a programme on social media. In those days, they didn't. No. Um, and so their only way of getting through is by writing a letter. It was almost like that wonderful sitcom down the line yes. that was on Radio 4. Yes. And um, uh, it, it was, uh, people would look at it now and think it was rather archaic, but it was the only channel um, by many people to get their name on air. Yeah. There were a few programmes that did that. You're quite an aficionado of, uh, of comedy, aren't you? Well, over the years, yes. I've always wanted, because I trained at Lambda, well, I trained at the Daphne Davies School of Music, Dance and Drama in Ryslip, and we were like a campus of Lambda. So we used to trail up to Talgarth Road <laughs> and uh, do all of our um, teachers' diplomas and gold medals. So I was very lucky to have two wonderful teachers, Olive Mercer, who... Actually, people would know Olive Mercer without even knowing they knew her because she played Mrs. Yateman in Dad's Army. Oh, wow. And Daphne Davy was wonderful. I mean, she was everything you would want. She was sylph-like and she, she was like a ballet mistress. I'm pretty sure that Ballet Rambert would have had Daphne Davy running it at some stage because she was like that. She was so... She had a figure that bent backwards rather than forwards. <laughs> and she walked like the most... I'm doing this wonderful impression of Daphne David. No one can see <laughs> oh, it. I can see it. But it's sinewy and it was just wonderful. And I, uh, I did some amazing stuff at, at drama school, from The Merchant of Venice to uh, Improvisation to Dvorak's New World Symphony, wow. where I improvised the whole thing on Noah's Ark. But comedy was always my thing. When I decided to come back to theatre, which was a few years ago now, it was a few, well, two or three years before Strictly Come Dancing, which really revitalised my career, when I was quite happy to retire by that time. But I, I, I got a call to work with Laurie Sansom, a, a marvellous director, up at the Stephen Joseph Theatre for Alan Aikbourne. And we did a, an amazing play called Soap. And it was based on a kind of EastEnders and a kind of home in a way. And there was this wormhole where the two casts went through this wormhole from Australia to Britain <laughs> and became caught up in each other's soaps. And I played the Dot Cotton character. So going back to comedy for me is a tremendous wonderful joy. I just love performing, mm. probably more than anything else. And over the years, I've done so much of it, over 30 pantomimes, mm. which I'm not keen to rush back to. <laughs> um, but yes, comedy, I love comedy. The kind of things I find extremely funny are things like cabin pressure mm. on Radio 4. It is one of the funniest... I mean, Stephanie Cole, Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, yeah. And um, uh, John Finnemore. Mm, wrote it. Who uh, wrote it. Mm. I mean, just the most hilarious stuff going on. Oh, oh there we are. There's our cuckoo. Oh, keep going. You'll see. You, you, this is where, of course, you now realise I live in Snowdonia. <laughs> and my nickname is Heidi. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why you're wearing that dress. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I need the hat. And where's Goat Peter when you need him? But that's my kind of comedy. An American comedy, which I really love, Seinfeld. I think I am Elaine. Um, I love Seinfeld. Third Rock from the Sun. That's my kind of humour. I love that kind of humour. That was the incredible thing about breakfast television. 
over the years, whether it was on the BBC or TVM, I met amazing people. I mean, when you actually get um, Kenneth Williams come up to you and say, my dear, I sound more like no coward here, <laughs> but I always said you had the aura of Orson Welles. I mean, I thought he was joking, but of course the thing is with Kenneth Williams, off screen, off stage, he never did joke. No. I mean, Peter Ustinov. I remember sitting and having coffee with Peter Ustinov. We were chatting about things. Um, as though, like you and I are now, Michael York, Susanna York, all of these Dolly Parton. No. You're such a cutie. <laughs> um, I mean, these people were uh, incredible. Well, that's to your credit, though. Russell, that is to your credit. The fact that people immediately take to you and uh, feel very relaxed with you. Well, we won't say everyone, <laughs> but uh, quite a few over the years. But these are the memories I treasure for your time capsule. How lovely. Well, we will take the launch of BBC Breakfast and we will put it into the time capsule and it's yours forever. Lovely and lovely. wonderful, wonderful memories. Oh, so that's perfect. So let's find your second item. to put. It has to be Strictly Come Dance. Of course it does. It came out of the blue. I was sitting at home in Snowdonia, where I now live, and um, 4.30 one afternoon, um, a call came from a lovely lady. Well, I knew she was a lovely lady because we became very close friends, Daisy Moore, and she was casting. And she said to me, we'd love to meet you about doing Strictly Come Dancing. And I turned it down. The reason I turned it down was I'd had four years of a deep depression because I'd lost both my grandmothers who were very important to me. I was a carer for Alzheimer's for one of my grandmothers. And um, I didn't think I could do it. I was nearly 30 stone in weight. Wow. And um, she said, uh, would you come and meet Moira Ross, the producer? There's no point. And in fact, it was my family who said, you've got to go. If you don't do it, you'll regret it. And so in the end, I went to Manchester and met Moira Ross, who was just, and is now a very close friend, but adorable. She said to me, have you had any dance training? I said, well, I went to school for performing arts, but we didn't really dance. Movement, but not dance. And I'd been in musical theatre up until then. I had uh, toured in Ivan Novello's King's Rhapsody and Hans Anderson at the London Palladium with Tommy Steele. So I had performed in theatre, but never to the extent of dance. And she said, throw back that table and give me a bit of movement. Anyway, I did. And she went, oh, you're a natural samba dancer. I went, am I? Funny enough, later on when I got involved in Strictly, that's the one thing that Flavia used to say, my partner. Anyway, she said to me, well, we've cast one person. I said, can you tell me who it is? No, she said. <laughs> I later found out it was Robbie Savage, mm -hmm. who became a very close friend of mine and still remains so. And uh, she said, I'll give you a call in a couple of weeks' time. I've heard it rumoured you're going to go into the jungle. Well, that rumour was definitely wrong. It was a Wikipedia rumour. And I wasn't going into the jungle at all. Um, I went, oh, really? Thinking to myself, that's weird, because I don't know anything about it. <laughs> and five o'clock that same... I saw her at two o'clock. By five o'clock that same afternoon, I got a call from Daisy, and she said, Moira's so keen not to lose you. She wants to offer you Strictly Come Dancing. Wow. And I got offered it on the same day. Again, I turned it down because I thought, I can't do it. Look at the size of me. And people very often, you'll read in some newspapers, he lost weight to do Strictly Come Dancing. I didn't. It, it was a fact that I was already realised that I was so ill because of my weight that I'd already started to lose weight. And by the end of Strictly Come Dancing, I'd lost, oh, so much weight. I was down to 16 stone. I'd lost um, seven inches off my waist. And it was just a phenomenal experience. One of the happiest times of my life. If you put BBC Breakfast Time and Strictly together, how lucky am I? Mm. And I had a wonderful time. The secret of Strictly is to have glorious people around you. And I had an, an amazing, 
producer in Moira Ross. We just had the most incredible people. And then by the time the casting had finished, uh, Robbie became a close friend. Nancy DeLolio was, I mean, she was irresistible. Nita Dobson. And all the years I'd done Breakfast Teddy, do you know I'd never met her? Which is incredible, really. I met all these Hollywood stars, but not half the EastEnders stars. She played my wife in, in The Archers. Oh, Anita. did she? Briefly, we were I together. I didn't realise that. Yeah. that. Do you know that's something I never knew? No, I don't think it's something that many people know. No, no. Well, she became a very close friend, and we're, we're still in touch. She never stops working, of course. You do become a family. And, um, and Flavia, of course, is a most beautiful Well, doll. that's the secret of success, your partner, if you have a good partner on Strictly Come Dancing, you can you can rule the world on it in your own way. With me, we went on, I mean, I think I went on to week nine. I came out the cannon at Wembley. That came about because Moira came into my dressing room the week we were doing the Paso Doble. And um, Moira came in and said, out of a cannon next week at Wembley Stadium. I said, I've got to get through this week. But if I do, yes. And that's how that happened. And that became, I'm told by the BBC, the most requested and watched clip of Strictly ever was the cannon. And Flavia and I actually got nominated for a BAFTA for TV Highlight of the Year. Wow. Do you know who we lost to? Kate and William's blasted wedding. <laughs> Why couldn't they have left it to the following the year? The money they spend on that to oh, top you. And they were, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> but Flavia, and that's the secret. You see, if you have a good partner, you don't actually have to win strictly, but I won it in my own way. Mm. I was 60 years old. I'd been seriously overweight, but I had a partner who understood me, a partner who knew that my strength was musical theatre, and performance, and comedy, and it was just incredible. And one of the evenings I remember when I did the samba, because when we did Better the Devil You Know, to Kylie's version, Better the Devil You Know, I came off air, because it's all live, and my nerves had never been so bad. Oh, I'm so nervous. (laughs) I came off, and Robbie said, get on Twitter, get on Twitter, us. I said, why, Kylie's asking about you. And there was this message from Kylie on Twitter, and it basically said, does anybody know how Russell and Flavia got on dancing to my Better the Devil You Know? And I said, yeah, we did all right. And she went, shimmy, Russ. And when we went on with the Glorious, who's another dear close friend, Zoe Ball, we went on It Takes Two. They'd done a special message from Kylie to Flavia and I. I saw that. Did you see that? I did. And my, my wife watches everything. <laughs> so you saw it. So and I it was miss. just incredible. So Strictly Come Dancing has to be there. It was joy, joy. Absolutely. With, with breakfast time, the launch of breakfast time was pride. With Strictly Come Dancing, it was joy. Oh, how lovely. You do underestimate yourself, though, because it's interesting how there's always somebody in a show who's clearly not going to win, but is there to win the hearts of the viewer. And you absolutely did that during that series. But the British public were just incredible, and I thank them every week, because I remember reading in one tabloid, it's actually the Sunday Mirror, who I wasn't working for then, an insider said, he's so fat he won't get round the ballroom, he'll be out by week one. I'm now back at the mirror. (laughs) And the person who wrote it, I don't think, is anywhere to be seen. Fantastic. Well, then we will take the gorgeous Strictly Come Dancing and put it into the time capsule and preserve it for you. So let's move on to number three. We're going to take a short break here for some adverts, but we'll be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what else Russell Grant would like to put in his time capsule. Number three would be launching Breakfast Time in New York on American television. I work for a company called FX, which was part of Fox. And in the mid-1990s, I had been asked by a really amazing lady called Claire Lewis. Now, Claire Lewis was a fine producer on British television who did a programme they came back to every year called Seven Up where the kids grew up and Claire was asked to launch a programme called People Today, which was coming out of Manchester and the presenters were myself, Miriam Stoppard, Tim Grundy and Adrian Mills. And it was to try and take on this morning on ITV. And Claire had this idea of sending me to New York and it was simply called Russell in New York and I went to tour around New York and experience in each episode a different part of New York. We crossed so many sections of New York, so many sectors of New York, so many different parts of New York when it came to life. You had the glitz of Manhattan. And then I one night I went through the whole evening with the South Bronx police wearing a special vest so that if anyone did fire or knife, I would be protected. So it, it was not just a bulletproof vest. It was also for knifing. Oh, how terrifying. So, it, well, I was out there, me, little old me in South Bronx. And we were taken to domestics. We were taken, oh, my goodness, how the other half lives. You would never believe it. So we'd gone from Manhattan to the South Bronx. Mm. And one of the programmes, I think there were 10 in the end, and one of them was I became a weatherman on American television. And I did it. They said, could you come up with an idea that is very you? And the producer was a man called JB, Joachim Blanc, known as JB, and he used to do Good Day New York. And so I went out into the middle of uh, Manhattan and I did the weather. So I had, um, it's too darn hot. It's too, and then I went, don't know why there's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather. So I did the whole of the weather forecast with great numbers all about the weather. So I'd gone from my bulletproof vest to now doing the weather. And, um, I, I found out afterwards, but I didn't know at the time. Apparently, JB said, who is this guy? I'm signing him up. Brilliant. And he did sign me up. And he signed me up not long after because Fox Television had decided to launch, ironically, the same name as the BBC, Breakfast Time. And I worked out there with, and again, I mean, the coincidence is just too crazy. I worked with two great presenters. One was Tom Bergeron and the other was Laurie Hibbert. Now, Tom Bergeron went on to host Dancing with the Stars, the American Strictly. (laughs) Who would have thought that? So I'd worked with him in the 1990s in New York and we launched FX. I was living in the Regency Hotel, which was just incredible. I lived a New York life. 
mm. um, for two years. And um, I, I just had the most incredible... I mean, I love New York. I love America anyway. And uh, by which time, by the way, my uncle John had won an Oscar for The Deer Hunter, had moved to America and had married a lady called Hersha Parody, who was the school teacher in Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> so I now had this whole big American thing going. And I even looked at moving to America for good. But sadly, uh, my wonderful grandmother, Alice, she was going down with dementia and eventually Alzheimer's. So I came back, and I came back to Britain and became a carer. Mm. My grandmother had brought me into this world. My mother was in 48 hours labour in 1951. I was a forceps baby. I was dragged out by forceps. The doctor was half drunk. And uh, my nan was there. Um, it was a very difficult birth. In fact, I died uh, when I was uh, born. My mother tells me had to slap me so hard <laughs> to make me uh, scream and shout and yell. Um, I wasn't even a diva in those days. <laughs> and I was screaming and yelling and shouting. <laughs> and um, so that was a low of, uh, um, because when my grandmother, who brought me into this world, uh, went down with this dementia and Alzheimer's, it was second nature for my mother and I to look after her. So um, that's what I did. And in fact, uh, from this, I had a most wonderful friend come out of it, Dawn Airy. Dawn Airy is huge in British television and, and certainly was. She was at Channel 4. She was at ITV. She commissioned my Russell Grant's All-Star show from Granada. But Dawn Airy really helped me during a period where I couldn't go very far because we were Nan's carer, but she kept me going. So Dawn Airy has been the most amazing friend and remains so to this day. When you're caring for somebody and they're getting worse and worse, it's strange how that often has an effect on you. You say that during that period you, you put on a lot of weight. I, well, it was after friends. she died. When right. Nan died, the irony here is my Nan brought me into this world February the 5th, 1951, and she actually died on February the 1st, mm. just before my birthday in 1995. And um, it was very difficult um, because when you've been a carer, your life becomes consumed by caring. And Alzheimer's and dementia is such a different disease, a horrid disease, because... When a person suffers with something where they're still cognizant, if I had or she had had cancer or a heart problem, she could tell me, I don't feel very well today, Russ. With Alzheimer's and dementia, the person cannot tell you. They cannot tell you how they feel. No. Um, and so, therefore, there is no communication. No. And the carer, therefore, becomes the voice, becomes the senses um, of that person. You have to guess how that person is. And in those early, early days of the late 1980s, early 1990s, of course, at the beginning, you don't even know. You just think the doctors used to think, oh, she's getting old. She's just losing her marbles. Well, of course, when now in this day and age with so much research and I'm heavily involved with three major organisations, I've even launched my own uh, charity, as a result of Strictly, I noticed that a lot of people with Alzheimer's dementia love the music, love the dance, and I've launched a charity called Dance for Your Life. But in the end, I lost Nan, and that's when I started, because I lost my other grandmother, who I went to. When my mum and dad were divorcing, and it was a very difficult time between them, and I was 13, 14 years old, and I couldn't bear the screaming and shouting anymore, I went and lived with my other grandmother, my grandmother Lily. And my grandmother Lily, she died in 1997. When I'd lost both of my grandmothers, the strange thing is the delayed reaction came, and this I'm, I'm sure people may have gone through the same experience. My Labrador died in front of me in 2003-04. And that triggered off all the grief from my grandmothers. Took all that time. Yes. And so from 2005, really, 2004, 2005, to 2009, I was in a terrible state. I was an antidepressant, so I soon realised that they're not going to help. 
Um, my weight just went up and up and up. I had a blue badge because I couldn't walk. I, I was on a stick. I was so breathless. I couldn't walk from here to the door. I mean, it was just the worst time of my life. And when I took myself in hand, which was 2009, January, that's when then I started to get back my raison d'etre, my reason for living. And I actually started by doing some amazing um, opportunities were handed to me by Port Merion, where I live in Snowdonia. Lovely man called Mary Jones asked me, along with Robin Llewellyn, to uh, put on some live events. And we put on Under Milkwood. We put on a Midsummer Night's Dream. And they were huge successes. And more importantly, they kept me going. And I was back in theatre. Mm. I tell you the one thing I remember to this day, in the Christmas 2008, I asked myself when I came off these antidepressants, what is it you need to get your life back? And I answered myself, theatre. And I went back to theatre. So astrology had taken over too much because it was only ever a hobby. Mm. It wasn't meant to be my career. No. But as Ron Neal said, going back to breakfast time, I don't care what you talk about, just do it. You're an entertainer. But the astrology took over, but my performing side came through in the astrology on television. But I wanted to do the classics. So I played Puck as um, a punk Doc Martens boy. (laughs) And I directed it. We got wonderful reviews. And, uh, yeah, so I went back. Um, I went back to that. To the thing you loved? Absolutely. And and, and it was fantastic. And it, it, uh, straight after Strictly, the reason why Strictly was so important to me took me back to theatre. Because it was um, Boxing Day of 2011, where we just finished Strictly. The contract is always over once you have done the Christmas Day special. And I got a call from Bill Kenwright and Andrew Lloyd Webber, who asked me if I would take over from Michael Crawford at the London Palladium in The Wizard of Oz. Wow. And I turned it down. <laughs> Not again. And it was my fan. I didn't think... It, well, you see, it just goes to show, you see, people might think you're full of bravado. <laughs> but underneath, I thought, oh, my God, last time I was at the Palladium was 34 years ago with Tommy Steele. Um, but all my family said, you've got to do it. How can you not do it? And it turned out to be wonderful. The thrill of coming out to see your face and posters on London buses, the underground going down on an escalator and you're staring at yourself on the trains, huge posters outside, strictly for 12 weeks only, was just amazing. So I ended up doing... I think 15 weeks in the end. I couldn't do any more because I was going then into Greece playing Teen Angel. (laughs) And they added an extra 32 bars. Um, Arlene Phillips choreographed me in The Wizard of Oz. There we go. Hello. Heidi. (laughs) And they added 32 bars of samba, paso and tango. (laughs) um, Where he does the dance with Frenchie. And then from Greece... Inevitably Panto. But then I, they joined Flavia and Vincent and I back together again in the West End. Wow. In Midnight Tango. Yeah. So it was just incredible. So that's how I got out of my funk, my depression, by going back to the thing I absolutely love. Yes. And still love. Well, we shall take you back to this marvellous launch of Breakfast Time on Fox Television in yes, New York. Yes, it was yes. incredible. And we will take that because it's led you right through all those wonderful mm. memories. I can see why you chose it because it just opens up that whole journey of and your life. And people don't know about that side. No. no one knew. No? No one knew. Why would we know about America? No. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've only got two items left. I'm afraid one of these is going to be something that you found rather embarrassing or or that you sort of would like to lock away, really? Well, I mean, there's there's two or three things. I mean, hardly embarrassing, but the lock away would You don't strike me as a man who gets embarrassed easily. Well, I don't really, because those must be the Aquarian side of me. I'm an Aquarian as well. Are you Aquarian too? Well, you'll know what I mean. There's always the rebel waiting to burst out. 
Um, I've got Libra rising, which tones me down a bit, so I'm much more of a diplomat than if I was just pure sun and moon Aquarius. Do you know, I've thought about this, and obviously if there's anything horrible and everything else, then it would have to be the years with my lovely grandmother with Alzheimer's, but you can't because in life you have to have negative to appreciate the positive. The only embarrassing thing I remember was in my astrology days, I founded an organisation called the British Astrological and Psychic Society. And we were asked by the Daily Mail to be involved with the Ideal Home Exhibition, which was huge and still is huge. And they wanted to do a big feature on the stars called The Stars in Your Life. And really, it was an explanation of astrology because people think it's just sun signs in the paper, but it's not. There's a lot more going uh, for astrology. You need date, time, place of birth and so on. It's an art and a science. And I remember the amazing PR lady, Canadian, called Janice Nash. And she was lovely. I mean, I adored her. And she came up to me and she went, Russell, Russell, get yourself ready. The Queen Mother's going to open the Ideal Home Exhibition and she wants to come to your stand specifically. No, I said, really? So I said, when's this all going to happen? It's going to be tomorrow. Well, I had this white suit that I'd bought with flares, because we are talking 1978 here. And I thought, shall I wear this white suit? And this you can find the pictures of me with the Queen Mother on uh, Google, I suppose, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you look at the picture, you'll see me in my white suit in the back. I look like Mafia. <laughs> um, I had a black... I had a black shirt, white tie, and a white suit. But mind you, it was very John Travolta, when you think, 1978. Yes. And so I put myself into this suit, and I was very slim in those days. I was only about 10 stone. And I got this suit, but it was still very tight-fitting. i never forget this. <laughs> and we're all lined up, because the Queen Mother's coming, and Janice Nash Rushford, she's not coming anymore, because she's running late. I went, what? Oh, no. So we all went back forlorn to the back of the stand, had a cup of tea. Then Janice Nashrath, she's coming. She wants to come. She's at the Cornish pasty stand at the moment. (laughs) And I never forget this. So I went back into the suit because obviously I'd taken it off. And I can just see down by the Cornish pasty stand, this big hat with feathers. So she's getting closer and closer and closer. And Anne said to me, you flies. I tried to pull the zip, but the zip had gone. No. And the Queen Mother is now just yards away. (laughs) And I've got my flies wide open. (laughs) I've got my flies wide open. I can't remember what colour my pants were. They're probably black or white. I like everything coordinated. And I said, Anne, what are we going to do? So we rushed back. Janice, who obviously was a friend, and Binny, the photographer, was holding everybody back while I went back. And there's Anne Halfheight with her hand down the front of my pants with safety pins. <laughs> this is the truth. This is the truth. And um, Janice said, get out there now. Well, I got out there and I just remember the Queen Mother should have stayed for three minutes, but stayed for half an hour. Wow. She was so interested in astrology. And there's one specific thing I remember she asked me, that we had all the birthstones up there, and under the sign of cancer, it had uh, the pearl, which is the birthstone for cancer. And then in brackets had, in Scotland, this is called Pearls are for Tears. And she looked at it, she went, how interesting, because, of course, she had a great connection with Scotland. Mm. And she said, yeah, I've heard of that before. Why do you think that is? I said, you know, Mum, I honestly don't know. Maybe it's tears of joy. What a wonderful explanation, she said. Uh Maybe it's for tears of joy. And she said, I really like that. And now, Mr Grant, if I wasn't the Queen Mother, what do you think I would be? I said, I think you'd make a wonderful theatrical impresario like Bernard Delphont or Lord Grey. And she went, 
quite so, quite so. And the picture you see of her is her smiling, looking at her chart, as I just said that to her. How lovely. So that's the smile. She loved the idea of being a theatrical impresario. <laughs> that's a lovely moment. But, you know, oh, yes, it could have been horrible. It could have been terrible. <laughs> I can't think of anything horrible. The most horrible things were the same. No, but uh, had that photograph included you and we could see your flies with the... Uh, well, that's what I thought they might be. <laughs> but maybe, maybe you would have been the man who launched punk. With... <laughs> Well, I was with my puck in a Midsummer Night's Dream, most definitely. But, but So there's a double thing there. It's a time capsule moment because I can't begin to tell you how panic-stricken we were. Because there is the Queen Mother. There are the TV cameras. There's the press. And you are stood there and you think you've just got to put a zip up, but you can't because the zip is the reason it's gone. That was my most embarrassing moment. Well, we'll take that that moment of complete terror. <laughs> it was terror. It was, yeah. absolutely. And I'm I glad thought, that it led to such a lovely experience. It did lead to a wonderful experience, and I and um, I met up with Her Majesty on a number of occasions afterwards at various events and things like that. It's a wonderful woman an amazing woman, a strong woman, and a person you can't help but after you've met her admire. I tell you the gift that she had, and I'm sure there were many, but the one gift is that you didn't feel that you were out of place. She made you feel special. It's the same as Diana, that same uh, charisma that makes you feel that you're the only person in the room mm. and they are talking to you. Mm. There's no one else there. And the Queen Mother and Diana both had this wonderful gift. They make you feel special. There's mm. that word again. I can't think of any other word that defines that moment I spent with them. When did you meet Diana? Royal Variety Show, oh, wow. 1984. Is this number five? It is. Uh-huh. Um, number five is Diana. It has to be Diana because, um, like, the Queen Mother was so special. Because the Queen Mother experience, of course, changed my life. The papers the day after had Astrologer Royal by royal appointment went around the world. I had nothing to do with it. It went around the world. And from that moment on, I didn't have an agent or anyone then. Oh, I had a theatrical agent, but not one who wanted, <laughs> wanted to represent me as an astrologer. Because it was a hobby. Um, and so I had Stephen Leahy, Granada, was the first person to ring up. And he said, I'm doing a new um, afternoon show, Live From Two. We'd love you to be on it. BBC Wales then rang up. Western Mail rang up. Could you write our stars? Blackpool Evening Gazette rang up. Could you write our stars? Kent Evening Post. Could you write our stars? And my life changed because of the Queen Mother. And that picture that went round the world. So um, that was that. So the Queen Mother changed my life, my career. Diana changed my life. She changed my life simply because I did the Royal Variety Show for 1984 and I was doing a skit with Ankara Reese, sadly no longer with us, mm. Charlie Drake, who hadn't been on television. Hello, my darlings. He'd yeah. not been on television for years. And Matthew Kelly. And the reason they had us was because Matthew is about 12 feet tall. I was the middle one. I was about five foot seven, eight. And Charlie Drake was about four foot 11. <laughs> so it was this kind of um, different scales of people. So the curtain went up and Harold Reese burst into song and it was, I want to be in love you just you and nobody else but you and of course we're all playing up to her because Charlie had a penchant for blondes and he played up to her a little bit too much than the producers really liked and at the end of the Royal Variety show you know you've seen many times before people the royals walked down in a line and there was Queen Mother there was Charles and there was Diana and the Queen Mother came first and she smiled at me. And when it got to Diana, she came up to me 
And she said, oh, Russell, I'm so glad to meet you. You know, when I was having Harry, I would watch you every day on morning television. You gave me such upliftment. You're a real tonic. I was dumbstruck. I should imagine so. I was dumbstruck. What we didn't know at the time was there were mics, secret mics around, and they were picking up on all the conversations. Next day in the sun, it had uh, Russell Grant, Diana. Diana said to Russell, and it had word for word. And I was horrified. Anne Rosenberg from uh, BBC Publicity rang me up and said, how could you talk? I said, I'm not, honestly, I've not talked to anyone. Well, of course, I, you would. everybody would imagine that you told them the story. Yeah, but... It, it, luckily enough, it wasn't just me, but there were two or three other conversations that were carried out. Anyway, it made no odds in the end uh, because basically that led to me becoming a confidant. Um, I would never say, and I never would to this day, the things we discussed or what we talked about, but she was the most amazing woman. Um, again, like the Queen Mother gave you this incredible feeling of, oh, my goodness, you know, you're, you're talking to me? Oh, oh, what, what shall I do? You don't have to do anything. They calm you. They just make you feel wonderful as Diana did that night at the Victoria Palace. And um, so when I look at the, all the situation with um, Harry now, I just wonder what Diana would be thinking. I think she'll be thinking as long as he's happy, then she would be happy. But of course, the day she died, I was on my way en route to Manchester Airport to fly out to work, do some work in Europe. And um, to this day, I don't think people who knew her and have met her would ever get over it. And those words ring in my ear. So that, I suppose in your time capsule or my time capsule, you've got a combination of the, the fabulousness of first meeting her to the sheer horror of her death. Mm. And because I became, you become close to somebody who gives you so much warmth and affection at a first meeting, which she gave me. You become close to them. You don't know why, um, you you don't know why they have chosen you to be so warm and affectionate towards because I just wasn't expecting it. It was a shock to have Diana, Princess of Wales, in front of me saying that. It was a shock. And I'll never forget it, ever. So she changed me because... I realised that what I was doing, what I was doing wasn't just astrology on breakfast telly or indeed anywhere else I happened to be. I was putting something out there that was perhaps a little bit more spiritual because my whole background anyway is I'm, I'm, I've always been a religious person, a, a Christian. But when she said, when I was having Harry, you gave me such upliftment, you were real tonic. It, it, I don't think that's anything to do with sun signs. It was all to do with whatever I was putting out there, what I was emanating through the cameras. And I always remember looking down the barrel of the camera and I always used to say to myself in my head, you're doing this for Betty in Wolverhampton. So I'd always seen just one individual in their house looking at me. Never in a million years did I realise I was doing it for Princess Diana yeah. in the London Hospital. Extraordinary. You know, so so that's how she changed me, really, because I'd never realised you could have such an impact no. by just doing a short 10-minute slot on Breakfast Telly. Mm. Do you think she would feel for Meghan Markle? I don't know, really. You can never speak for somebody because you don't ever know them that deeply in their heart, in their soul. But I would think, I mean, I, I worked in the West End um, uh, not so long ago with uh, Maureen Lippman and Cressida Bonas. 
Um, and uh, she just finished going out with Harry. And Harry was there in the audience the night we were there at the Leicester Square Theatre. And I was completely struck by Harry's... Well, I, I, he must have got it from his mother, or gets it from his mother, but his tremendous bonhomie, that's what I was struck by. But I watched him go round the room, and he had the same wonderful energy as Diana. He had that same... Well, it's a bonhomie with him, but that same ability to draw people to him magnetic, like Diana, like the Queen Mother. So he gets it from his mother and his grandmother, or his grandmother's the Queen, his great-grandmother. Yes. And so therefore, just looking at him, I was thinking at the time, thinking, I wonder how proud your mother would be of you. And I think that as long as he's happy, whether he will be with the changes that have happened, I don't know. No. We don't know. No. Only time will tell. Mm. But I do hope he's happy because yes. I know if he's happy, then Diana would be happy too. Mm. And the fact that her death affected the world oh, so dramatically totally. and we didn't know her. No. And the fact that you did know her, it must have been a very traumatic time for you. It was traumatic. You just wish there was something you could have done. It's a strange thing. You're sat in the back of a taxi, speeding towards Manchester Airport. You first of all get the shock, and then afterwards you get the whole... Couldn't something have been done? What if that could have been done? (laughs) It's difficult. It's hard. And, And that would also go down as one of my saddest moments mm, the sure. of course what you do know is you knew this woman who was incredible the things she did whether it was landmines whether it was hiv at the lighthouse this is a woman who was prepared to do what no one else had ever done in the royal family and that's what made her so incredible as a person just a, a person who was giving back so much to the world mm. and the world gave back to her with their love mm. and acknowledged her as being somebody who was stepping out of the role of royalty as it had been, maybe too much protocol. It's noon, everybody, we're it's recording this. And there we are, Heidi is back. <laughs> well, I think Heidi's telling us that we've talked for long enough. I yeah, I think so. I, I think, think we have talked for long enough. But We should take the gorgeous Diana, your friend, and put her in the time capsule for you. That's so very you kind of you to call me her friend. Whether I was or not, I tried to be. As I think you are to, to everybody. We've never met before, Russell. And no, talk, but I feel we And you talk about people talking to you as if they'd known you all their life. And I think that's exactly the experience I've had. Oh, well, that's very kind because that's the words to describe the Queen Mother and Diana. I'd never met them, but I felt I'd known them all my life because that incredible ability to make somebody feel special. And now you. Bless you. Thank you, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Russell Grant. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or any podcast app, really, to hear all other episodes and to receive each new episode on the day of release. And if you have the time, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave a review. Thank you very much. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search for at my TC pod or Fenton Stevens. It'll come up. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast off production. Thank you very much for listening. I'm off to practice my cha-cha-cha. Well, you never know when that phone call is going to come. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.